welcome to Return to Zero. Since the dawn of audio recording, the medium has been utilised in countless imaginative ways to capture pretty much everything. One of the most precious and meaningful applications has been in the preservation of heritage, tradition, way of life and language. To document the characters, stories and songs that form the very basis of our culture. 2020 finds us in a highly important moment in terms of preservation of such material. The wide range of formats employed over the duration of the past 100 plus years has resulted in a literal race against time to conserve and digitise this invaluable content before these primary sources degrade and disintegrate and risk being lost forever. Unlocking Our Sound Heritage is a project that encompasses the four countries of these islands and was established to help save each nation's rare and unique sound recordings whilst also making them available for everyone to hear. Financed by the Heritage Lottery Fund and managed by the British Library, the National Library of Scotland acts as the country's hub for this colossal undertaking, and Return to Zero were lucky enough to speak with the team, normally housed at their digitisation studio site at Kelvin Hall in Glasgow. I first spoke with Jenny Park, Scotland's hub project manager, and Mel Reeve Rollins who, as rights officer, has the task of tracking down the families and estates in question to seek permission for use. Hello to you both, and thanks so much for finding the time to speak with us. I wonder if I could start with yourself, Jenny, and ask if you could provide an outline or overview of the Unlocking Our Sound Heritage project and what it hopes to achieve. Certainly. It's a multi-million pound project. It's funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund, and the lead partner is the British Library. There are 10 hubs across the UK, of which the National Library of Scotland is the hub that covers the whole of Scotland. And in turn, each of these hubs works with a variety of collection partners. So for us, that's 16 different collection partners. We are bringing in just over 5,000 items uh, for digitisation, which should result in about somewhere between seven and 10,000 recordings, which all have to be catalogued. And then we'll try to clear as many rights as possible on as many of those recordings as possible and showcase them on a website for the British Library. And what is the nature of the content on the material that you're preserving? It's quite varied. Um, we have a lot of oral history um, in both English, Scots, Doric and Gaelic. Um, we have lectures, we have wildlife recordings. Uh, there's music, traditional music from Scotland and Ireland. We've got poetry and what I class as ephemera, which is just kind of odd things. <laughs> as with any other recordings, Copyright and permissions need to be acquired and agreed before they can be made available to the public. But when dealing with such a diverse range of audio material, and the age of the majority of recordings involved, where do you begin in terms of establishing clearance? That detective role falls on the shoulders of yourself, Mel. Would you be able to outline the legal implications that have to be taken into consideration when categorising, preserving and making this material available to everyone? Yeah, so... My job kind of has two parts. There's copyright and data protection. Uh, in terms of copyright, we have to think, obviously, the majority of what we're dealing with is still um, protected by copyright. So we have to think about who has copyright in the material that we're dealing with. And my job, basically, in the first instance, is to try and get in touch with those people, find out who they are, um, first of all, and then get in touch with them to 
ask them for a license basically and that kind of looks very different depending on what kinds of material I'm working with we do have some stuff that is public domain as well which means that after just kind of doing the math to check through um, each of the embedded layers of rights because copyright and sound is particularly complicated you can have um, or you will have multiple layers of rights. So, for example, if you take a conversation like this one, I would have copyright in what I'm saying, Jenny would have copyright in what she's saying, and then you as the sound recordist would potentially own uh, the copyright for the um, actual recording itself. So already you can see that it can kind of build up quite quickly. That's quite a lot of people to have to um, consider getting in touch with. Um, and then if you think about music, you know, that's adding potentially some other levels to worry about there as well. So once I've kind of found out who I'm trying to get in touch with, um, then I'm going to be doing a lot of detective work and Googling and using um, all different resources to try and find a way to get in touch with those people. Uh, and then um, I'm going to ask them to give a license. And then also after that, uh, we have to think about data protection. So anything we put online, um, which obviously we need that permission to do so, we need to make sure that there's no personal data in those recordings that we have concerns about making available. Um, and without getting too much into the details of that, because it is quite complicated, we um, use the archiving in the public interest basis for processing personal data, um, which basically means that I have to check what we're making available to ensure that it wouldn't cause substantial damage or distress to an identifiable living individual. Um, so that's kind of the second part of my role. All in all, that's quite a responsibility and undertaking for you both. Can you tell us a little about your own backgrounds and how you both got involved with the project? Sure. Shall I go first, Mel? <laughs> yeah, go for it. I do not have what you would class as a career. Um, I have a series of jobs that I've privileged to hold. Academically, geography and cartography. I've worked in hospitality and retail, civil service, community charities, higher education, and was over the moon um, when I got the project manager's job um, for unlocking our sound heritage. So yeah, not non-standard background. I would imagine that such a varied background would be hugely beneficial for a programme of this nature in terms of managing the numerous aspects and situations that it can generate. Yeah, um, there's things that it can bring to project management from all sorts of backgrounds which can benefit any project in any environment. And how about yourself, Mel? Yeah, so um, I have perhaps a more traditional heritage background. I trained as an archivist. I have an MSc in information management and preservation uh, from the Uni of Glasgow. Uh, and then after that, kind of worked in archives and records management before this role. Um, but one of the things that I did when I was studying was learn about copyright and data protection. And it was always something that I was quite interested in. So when I saw this job advertised, I thought, oh, that could be quite good fun and feel very lucky to be involved with the project. And particularly, I think my aspect of the process, I get to think a lot about the things that I find really interesting, which is data protection um, and thinking about kind of the ethics of what we're doing as well. Although, of course, the others think about that too, but um, just in the context of what I'm doing, I find it very interesting. Have there been any recent legislative changes in terms of copyright and or data protection that you've had to navigate and adhere to in your endeavours to acquire clearance and agreement? So um, I don't know if you've heard of Brexit, um, <laughs> but basically one of the things that the project had had in mind, because that was what was the situation at the time that it was kind of jumped up, was something called the Orphan Works Directive, which is a piece of European Union legislation. That means if you can't identify a copyright holder, you can go through this process 
to register um, that work as a so-called orphan work, basically meaning a work where, you know, it has no no one to own it. And then you can make it available online without a risk to your institution. Now, we can no longer rely um, on that legislation. So what the British Library, who kind of define a lot of the process and procedures that I use uh, for my work, have done is said that we can follow the same process, what's called a diligent search process, which basically just means looking really hard and carefully and doing kind of the same level of detail for everything to make sure it's kind of fair and responsible. So we go through that process, which is what you'd do if you were using um, that legislation, but at, at the end of it, there's no kind of legal protection. So then it's kind of about making a, a risk-based judgment, which is what your institution is comfortable doing. So, you know, I think if we have like an oral history recording, it's usually pretty straightforward to say, look, you know, these people are, first of all, probably dead and we're just talking about their daily life you know there's unlikely to be commercial interest in it if we follow this process it's pretty unlikely uh, to be high risk but you know this is quite a new approach because obviously it's only recently that we've had to start thinking about dealing with this stuff without that legislation and I think it's really interesting and exciting to be in a position to consider what heritage institutions can do if they start thinking kind of outside of what is prescribed in terms of what you're allowed to do and thinking more about what's, you know, practical and responsible. What are the timescales involved that you're working towards? And at what stage would you say the project is currently at? Well, we're in post for three years. That's how long our hub um, is in action. The British Library have a five-year project and we sit right in the middle of that. And this has just started year three. Um, So obviously coronavirus has had a big dent in the things that we are looking to do. How does the process of material acquisition work? Is it sent to you or do you go to collect? Perhaps a combination of both? Basically, the the materials that we're bringing into the project, they were all identified back in a a UK-wide survey in 2014, which tried to identify what sound archives there were in the UK and what sort of state they were in. So from that, everything was graded and sifted and the most at-risk recordings identified and the things which are most unique, which should be a priority for preservation. That was kind of all in place before we came into post. But um, we as a team arrange and organise for the information to come in. We go and pick up um, the collections and bring them in. Although that's kind of sometimes at the moment we have to look at couriers as well, just with current circumstances. And how difficult has the process been of obtaining permission? Is each case unique in terms of complexity and effort required? Mm, Yeah, I think it's really different depending. I mean, even within one collection, you know, obviously depending on like the format of what I'm working on, it's very different. But, you know, I think it's really interesting because obviously the more kind of famous or notable a person is, the easier it is to get in touch with them. So for example, if you are on who's who, I can get your home address very quickly. If you are, you know, not posh enough to be on that or important enough to be on that, then um, it's much less likely that I'll be able to find a contact for you. Um, And I think that's really interesting because there is obviously a risk there that it's going to skew what gets made available online in terms of those who are easier to contact. And also, I think just anecdotally as well, it's quite common for me to find men easier to find contact information for than women um, and things like that. That's when I do think kind of that, uh, what I was talking before about orphan works is really, really important. Um, But it's also quite good fun. You know, sometimes I'll spend a bit of time trying to find someone and it feels like 
I'm just not going to get anything. And then um, all of a sudden, like I find an email address or a Facebook profile and um, have an answer from them really quickly. Um, and it's also really great to be able to talk to the people, you know, many, many years down the line who are involved in maybe an oral history recording or whatever it might be. Um, and I think for them, it can feel very exciting and validating that this thing that was a very small part of their life at that moment is you know, being given value and is being preserved appropriately because it is important, even if for them, it didn't feel like, you know, like I was just chit-chatting about my life or whatever it might be. It's really nice to get to talk to those people and, and share with them what the project's doing. In terms of turnaround, how quickly are you able to make material available to the public from the point of bringing it in or having it delivered? Ah, well, best laid plans. We were supposed to have a website that the British Library are building to showcase all the sounds. Obviously, that's been impacted by the current um, pandemic. So that's now due to go live in March next year, 2021. In the meantime, we have some examples available on the Scotland Sounds website. And if, again, we weren't in a pandemic situation, then people would be able to come on site um, with a pre-booked appointment and listen to sounds. But again, that's not possible at the moment, I'm afraid. Do you consult with your colleagues from the other hubs in terms of sharing information and experience? Yes, we do. We have regular meetings across all the different aspects of the project um, by Zoom. Glasgow Hub at the Kelvin Hall was the very first one in the UK to be set up. So there were a lot of things that we trialled and then were able to share with the other hubs good practice about what worked and what didn't work and the ways to tweak things. We were also the first ones to have paperwork in place, the first ones to have tracking sheets in place, the first ones to have a rights officer in place. So again, the experience we've had has been invaluable in supporting the others. But the information flow comes the other way as well. When it comes to learning and engagement, different hubs have tried different things and we feed back to one another saying, oh, this worked really well or this didn't work so well. Um, So, yeah, it's a really good network. On the Unlocking Our Sound Heritage website, there's several mentions of collection partners and remote volunteers. I wondered if you could explain who they are and what role do they play in assisting with the programme? Mm-hmm. Um, as I said, we've got 16 um, collection partners, a wide variety of organisations and individuals. We have the Universities of Glasgow, St Andrews and Strathclyde. We have Springtime Music, Aberdeenshire Museum Services and Aberdeen City Art Gallery and Museum, Fife Cultural Trust, Scottish Poetry Library, National Museum of Scotland, BBC, South Lanarkshire Council, Museums and Galleries Edinburgh, National Trust for Scotland, Western Isles Libraries, Scottish Ornithologists Club, Gerloch Museum and the National Library of Scotland themselves. I think that's everybody. <laughs> Have you found most relatives in estates to be happy for this material to be shared for public consumption? Yeah, I think generally people, as I said, are quite excited. I mean, sometimes people are a bit apprehensive Sometimes I'm like basically cold calling them, you know, like I have a phone number maybe in the documentation or I've found one somewhere and I'm just calling them up. And it's very important in that situation to try and get them to understand that I'm not like trying to get their bank details or something because people can be obviously very nervous. And I think, you know, as soon as I say like National Library of Scotland or British Library, that kind of gives them a bit more trust. But, you know, some people don't want to grant a license and that's absolutely fine. You know, that's as much a valid response 
um, and as helpful for what I'm doing as as those that do, because at least then, you know, we have the answer to the question of whether or not that's something they would feel comfortable with. Um, and I think that is quite dependent on the collection material. So we do have a collection of LGBTQ plus oral histories. And I think that was one of the collections where I found people were a bit more hesitant. But I mean, you can completely see why that might be the case. You know, they've been interviewed in, I think, the early 90s apologies if I got that wrong so a good while ago they might not remember what they've said and they're talking about something that's you know a very deep personal part of their identity and they may not want that information to be available and you know if that's their choice for myself I'm only asking them for permission in a copyright context but if their reasoning is you know they feel apprehensive about the content then that's totally fine or if their reasoning is that they think they want to sell it and make loads of money you know that would be fine too although I'd be surprised if that was the case What's been your most difficult case to date in terms of securing permission? And what kind of lengths did you have to go to in terms of investigating and coming to agreement? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I try to give kind of an equal amount of time to everything that I'm looking at because, you know, it's not entirely my place to judge and say, I think this is the most interesting thing, therefore I should give it like a whole day and I think this is not as interesting so I'll give it 20 minutes you know so I try to try and be fair although there are some things obviously that I'm personally more interested in I think on a collection level we have a collection called Scotland's Record which is actually powered by the National Library and that was very challenging just because it was such a an interesting array of different types of recording so you know if you have a collection that's like 20 oral history recordings it's a pretty straightforward process once you get in the rhythm of it you know I know what I'm doing but but when you're working on all different types you know music poetry radio within one collection then it can feel a bit more difficult but I think I ended up getting 94 recordings cleared out of that so a happy result for sure for all that work (laughs) when we spoke in preparation for this episode You mentioned, Jenny, that the team had acquired some equipment from eBay. Can you tell us about this, as I imagine there'll be many who may be surprised about the methods employed to track down specific technology for the project? Yes, absolutely. Um, Obviously, when you have older formats and you want to digitise them, they need to be played back on the original equipment um, before they're converted. So as part of the project, the British Library provided us with some basic equipment. But as we found more formats within the collections, we've had to expand and get some more stuff. So we had a lot of four track that came um, out of certain collections. So we found on eBay a Tascam 34B and um, sent two two members of staff um, down to London to collect it and bring it back up. Subsequently nicknamed Princess Dolly because she was tucked up so nicely overnight in a motel room. (laughs) But we've also purchased an Emmy Dicta machine. And this is for a really rare format, um, Emmy Dicta discs. Um, It was very short-lived. It's not a very good method of, of recordings that doesn't seem to hold its magnetic signal very well and we took a chance looked on ebay to see if we could get the playback machine and there was one for sale <laughs> i know you've already alluded to it but i wanted to ask about the impact that the current pandemic situation has had on the program and how you think it will shape things moving forward Yeah, definitely. I mean, straight away we had um, three months where we weren't on site, so there was no digitisation happening at all. We're very lucky the National Library was very quick to react 
and give us access to everything from home. So we're able to carry on with cataloguing and rights clearance and various other learning engagement activities. The biggest impact really has been the digitisation. So we're very much on the back foot and trying to, to recover our, our numbers there. The other thing it put an end to was our um, volunteering programme. We had um, volunteers on site one day a week for 12 weeks, getting experience of all the different aspects of the project, helping us out in lots of different areas. And overnight that went. So we're just starting an online volunteering program at the moment for cataloguing, but it's still in the early days and we're still trying it out. And for yourself, Mel, has it affected your own role in securing rights and permissions? Um, It's had a bit of an impact mostly in that, like, the printer at work is still at work and I'm at home <laughs> and also my phone is in the office still but you know um there's lots of ways to work around that and colleagues that are in the office have been helping me out with stuff that I can't do from home and and I've actually kind of been focusing luckily anyway on the collections that we didn't have a lot of documentation for because one of the things that I would normally do is is you know go through all that archive material to kind of look for any addresses or information and I haven't been doing that at the moment but that's it really other than that it's been pretty much the same. I imagine you'll have both experienced so much on a project like this. Would you be able to share with us some of your own personal highlights so far? I think Personally, for me, there's two strands. One is working with such a great team who are also knowledgeable and generous with their time and supportive, not just within the project team, but within the the wider National Library as well. And the other thing is the great privilege it's been to listen to the audio recordings, things that will make you cry, things that will make you laugh. And no day is ever the same. You know, you sit at your desk some days with tissues and other days you're doubled up laughing on the floor. So the whole role is a great privilege. Yeah, I think I definitely agree with Jenny there. It's never something that you kind of forget when you're working on this material that You know, it's something that people have not heard for a very long time and perhaps without this project would never have been able to hear. For me with my role as well, knowing that I'm kind of that final step in the process to potentially allow a lot more people to hear all of this amazing, valuable stuff is is a real privilege and is really exciting and is something that I'm happy about every day. And also getting to talk to people about how copyright and data protection in archives is really important because it actually is a positive thing that allows us to give access to our collections rather than like kind of boring legal stuff that we just have to do is something that I personally get very excited about and find interesting. Finally, what does this programme mean to you both? And can you articulate the importance it has to our cultural identity and understanding for the people of Scotland? can't actually overstate how important it is. It goes without saying that, you know, institutions collect on people collect photos and books and documents and physical items and it's really important but sound is often overlooked in those collections and it's very much, a photograph is very much a two-dimensional medium whereas when you have the sound of what those, those people's voices are it can awake emotions in you that otherwise you wouldn't have reading something they'd written or watching a film or looking at a photograph it very very much brings back you know sort of childhood memories and things like that and things which are lost I mean how many of us know what trams sounded like in the first half of the 20th century there are recordings we have which no longer exist so there's a recording of a rookery 
in the top of a, a copse of trees. And about a week after that recording was made, the copse was cut down. So that's a unique sound which can never be replicated. And if we hadn't digitised it, it would be lost forever. So, yeah, cannot overstate the importance. Connor Walker is the audio preservation engineer responsible for transferring and digitising material, whilst Rob Smith, as cataloguing coordinator, takes care to maintain the vast directory of content as it is processed. I started by asking them both if they could describe in some more detail what each of their roles in the project involves and entails. Hey guys, and thanks so much for finding the time to speak to us, as I'm sure you're both very busy. Could I start by getting you to tell us about your own backgrounds and how you both found yourselves involved in working on this colossal challenge? Yeah, I'm happy to, to kick off. Uh, I can't say it was a, a sort of straightforward path to, to join in the project. I've, I've had a fascination with, with sound and, and audio since my, my early 20s. I started playing a band uh, while living in, in Aberdeen and, and that kind of got me to experimenting with doing uh, a bit of home recording. And that kind of eventually led me to go into Aberdeen College to do uh, an audio engineering course. And I did a bit of uh, live and, and studio work uh, in Aberdeen then, but I didn't really feel it was quite the right career choice for me. So I decided to, to look into a different direction and I went back to school to do a, a library degree. And I was kind of looking to see if there was a way that I might be able to combine both interests and in sort of like information management and also audio. And um, while I was studying, there was a, an opportunity came up to, to volunteer with the, the British Library who were developing a directory of audio collections that exist throughout the UK. And I started uh, as a volunteer on that. And uh, eventually I, I managed to get a job as a, as a project cataloger at the British Library Sound Archive, which was a really, really great experience. I missed living in Scotland, so I decided to, uh, to relocate to uh, Glasgow. And while up here, I saw that the opportunity came up to join the National Library of Scotland uh, on the Unlocking Our Sound Heritage project. So I applied and I'm delighted and very honoured to be taking part in the work that we're doing. Before Unlocking Our Sound Heritage, I was working in the media studio of the Glasgow School of Art. And it's sort of a kind of doubled role. One of the, one of the roles is in the equipment storeroom, primarily circulating AV equipment to students and staff. And then um, the more exciting part of the role for me personally was actually working with students to set up their own installations and to, you know, help them with whatever sound recordings um, or sound element they wanted to introduce into their work. Before that, I have a bit of a hodgepodge background, uh, record stores, uh, circulation desk at a public library in Texas. Um, I've worked at quite a few underground and pirate radio stations and some record labels as well. So I, I assume I was brought onto the project because there's these, you know, these layers of education, library work, and then also kind of, you know, multiple streams of sound that, of course, uh, filter into the project as well. So what does a typical day for each year involve? Are there indeed typical days on a project like this? They're very much they're 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 few and far between. They they were rare to uh, to appear before March, and obviously since the pandemic, they've just they're a strange mix now as well. For me, like I, I'm I am a kind of like a diehard cataloger at heart, so 
I like the days when I can actually just sit down and focus on listening to some of the um, recordings that have been digitized and catalog them. But I don't get to do that as often as I'd quite like. We have a, a very kind of ambitious um, volunteer program as part of the project. And I'm quite heavily involved in that. I, uh, I help to support and supervise the work that the volunteers do, as they primarily are helping with the um, huge amount of cataloging that's got to be uh, undertaken for the project. It was the case before March that the volunteers would come in once a week for, for 12 weeks, and they'd have the opportunity to shadow the work that Connor does, gain an understanding of uh, the rights clearance process. Um, they'd also undertake a little curation project as well. But the kind of the, the backbone to their entire experience was to help us with the, the cataloging. So we have a huge amount of oral history uh, material being taken in on the project, and the interviews can last anywhere between sort of an hour and three hours at a time. So I don't have that time to, to listen to everything, uh, but our volunteers are, are, are good enough to come on board and give us their time so they can actually create quite detailed uh, entries for each of the catalogue records that we create for those oral history uh, uh, recordings. Both myself and Connor are also involved in going out to collect material. So we have uh, 16 external collection partners involved in the project, and uh, it's our responsibility to go and collect the material from these partners and bring it on site and, and, and safely store it and digitize it. So I was recently over in Edinburgh at the Scottish Poetry Library to cut a collection from, from them, uh, and we have a pickup due at some point very soon from Fife. So yeah, we, we get to explore all parts of Scotland as well, which is quite exciting. To segue from Rob, and just like he said too, the ideal day for me is just being in the studio, getting to actually listen to the transfer, the tape transfers as they're occurring, and, and to kind of work with the materials. It's very rare that that day occurs, you know, it, it's, it's, sometimes I wish I would walk in and I'd feel like I'm in a ghost town and I could just transfer tapes all day, but that, that rarely happens. I guess today, for example, I, I'm working on the Scottish Poetry Library collection, which is, it's magnificent. It's one of my favorite collections I've worked on in this entire project. It's, the material is so diverse. There's tapes of lectures of Icelandic sagas and then there's also avant-garde 70s uh, poetry readings where people are screaming and grunting at the top of their lungs and not even not even saying not even saying the, the, any of the words that we recognize or speaking in a natural language. So that that's been amazing. Uh, it's a combination of mini disc cassettes and quarter inch tape. So sometimes it's balancing multiple systems running simultaneously. Today, for example, I was running two cassette decks uh, and ripping mini discs on another PC in the same same room. And then there's always just little odd jobs that pop up. Today, for example, we're in Kelvin Hall, we're embedded in the moving image collections. And uh, we have one of one of the, they have some sound items, of course, that correspond to some of the, the, the film collections that they maintain. And there is a single shellac disc in this beautiful handmade wooden and cloth box. And so I was just deciding uh, the best way, because it's this bespoke item and it doesn't just slot into a, a, a typical uh, kind of shellac, you know, 10 inch or 12 inch box. I was trying to figure out the best way to get this this item into our long term uh, storage. Just little little things, little things like that. And then also today with the with the volunteers, I did a um, probably way too lengthy history of the mini disc with them. <laughs> You've already touched on one or two, but for the self-confessed anoraks amongst us, can you tell us about the types of formats that you're working with and if they're always in a playable state? This project is 
very much concerned with magnetic tape, particularly because we're we're working on making unpublished sound recordings accessible. And uh, magnetic tape in all its varieties of formats was for generations a, a perfect medium for, for unpublished material. So in terms of formats, the, the, the primary two that I work with are cassettes and quarter-inch open reels. Although cassettes are a little bit more standardized, that was one of the reasons though they were cartridged and, and set up in the way that they were. As for the open reel tapes, there's a little bit more variance in terms of their playback speed, their recording configuration. We recently brought in a four-track and quarter-track machine, uh, which we've had a good 30 items of lately. And then in addition to sort of those, the main formats, uh, we also work with DATS, digital audio tape, mini discs, which um, are a magneto-optical format, and micro and mini cassettes. Emma Dicta discs, although we, uh, I, I really don't want to get too deep into Emma Dicta discs because we're, we're struggling to find a solution right now to be able to, to transfer into discs. So. <laughs> With regards to the reel-to-reel material in particular, is there a greater incentive and time pressure to try and process the material before degradation makes that option impossible to achieve? There is and there isn't. One thing that is interesting is some of the, like, some of the material that was on the cusp of, you know, like CDRs, mini discs, DATs that were, you know, late 90s uh, in the oddies. Those items, because of softwares that are completely, you know, uh, obsolete now, and, and some of the playback equipment didn't really have as much of a market as open reel tape and cassette, for example. The challenges of, of digitizing them are even more so than quarter inch tape. But with, with that said, with sticky shed syndrome, where you have to put, you know, open reel tapes in an environmental chamber uh, or, or an oven overnight to ensure that the magnetic coating can hopefully reattach to the base layer. That is a problem, a preservation problem that arises quite often. There's rarely a tape that I've come across that isn't transferable. That's not to say it's in its ideal state by any stretch of the, the word. One of, one of the most difficult preservation issues is when the tape loses its lubricant. Um, especially with uh, with cassette tapes, but it's it's my favorite acronym in in sound archiving. It's L O L O L for loss of lubricant. What's the procedure in those instances? Have you found a workaround that you can employ? I've just started using jojoba oil, and it seems to be good on the tape itself. Um, I think the worry though is is kind of having it gunk up. The, um, the actual playback equipment, the, the, the tape heads and, and that mechanism. I put it on this, whatever side of the tape, it's, it's, a, it's a different side on whether it's cassette or open reel, but I put it on the side of the tape that isn't coming into close contact with the tape path and the, and the heads. One of the, one of the things that we're really focused on on the project is, is obviously is preserving magnetic tape material, um, and it's kind of been said for a long time. That, you know, the, the the window of opportunity to digitally preserve this material has been closing, and it's we're looking at you know somewhere in the region of like ten years now before either the the format itself has degraded beyond the point where we can't play it back, or the the playback equipment itself has fallen into disrepair and and we've lost the skills to to maintain it. And I think the project that we're on, this unlocking our sound heritage project, is has been great for highlighting that and and kind of bringing it higher up into into the, the sort of public conscious. 
to the point now as well where the there's a there's an international organization the international association of sound and audiovisual archives we call it iasa for short they've launched their magnetic tape alert project now and it's kind of taking what we're doing onto a, a global scale which is is fantastic but I also have to fully agree with what Connor was saying. Like, I think it's good to highlight these analog formats as as being at, at risk. But the digital formats that we've got in terms of, of CDs, CDRs, and, and mini discs are, are just as much as at risk now for different reasons. There's no linearity to it. As delicate as wax cylinders are and shellac discs, if they're put in proper storage, they will be able to be played back and transferred in the in the future. They they, they are quite they are quite sustainable in, in that matter. And it, it is very interesting to see how some of the more contemporary formats there's some huge challenges in terms of of, of rescuing that material. Uh, in fact, I think CDRs I would put that as the number one most at, at risk item. I find it to be actually one of the most interesting aspects of sound archiving but also one of the, the most frustrating because there is this kind of, there's this idea that the older it is, the more significant it is. We also have this kind of material fetishism that we specifically, you know, apply to things like old dusty records and, and, and uh, you know, and, and that type of thing. Now, I don't mean to say that in that those items aren't extremely significant because, because they, they are, but, it just unfortunately doesn't follow this kind of simple linear time frame. And, and also with the acceleration of technology, that, that era of the late 80s onward, these formats were just coming out so quickly. And what ended up happening is the, is the companies that were making them, they, they didn't have, you know, 50 years where they were building these machines. You know, when open reel tape was standardized after World War II, you know, everyone in the world was just must have been in agreement like, OK, this is the bee's knees and we're going to keep this format going for the next, you know, few decades at the least. Or the next, really for the next half century almost. Um, and, you know, with some of the more modern formats, that that just isn't isn't the case. They, they made a splash. They did their thing for a few years and then they were replaced when another technology kind of accelerated by them. And also, just to, to springboard off of that, the the obsolescence of the equip the playback equipment itself is is sometimes even more of a concern than uh, the fragility and the ephemerality of of the materials themselves. Uh, even cassette players, for example, the the cassette decks we used ten years ago were around sixty pounds, and and now they're you know close to five hundred pounds for the exact same model. So. So yeah, maintaining that equipment and being able to, you know, purchase older equipment that is becoming much more rare and expensive is 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 definitely something that is a it's a struggle now and and that struggle is going to be even more taxing in the years to come. And Rob, if I could turn to yourself, what are some of the major cataloging challenges that you face on a project of this scale and nature? I imagine your British Library experience has been hugely beneficial here. Yeah, it, it definitely, uh, I think, gave us a bit of a, a head start, especially because the, the standards that we're using, the way that we catalogue uh, material is using a British Library cataloguing standard. So the British Library have a dedicated ca- uh, catalogue called the Sound and Moving Image Database. And this the, the standard that they use to catalogue into that database is the same that we use to catalogue material on the project. I think the, the, the biggest challenge is just scale. 
is the amount of material that we actually have to catalog in the time that we have. The, the, the process for cataloging uh, is split into two. We do the first stage where we, we catalog the, the physical items in a collection. So we create catalog entries that describe the, the, the sound carriers, be it a compact cassette or an open reel tape. The second stage of cataloging then describes the recordings that are found on those items. And that's where it can get a little bit philosophical at times because uh, what we do is try and identify uh, each unique recorded event that we find on a sound carrier. What is a recorded event? That's, that's the question that, that always comes, we always come back to. We can look at it quite broadly and we could say that you have a, a radio broadcast of a, a particular radio show and we could just catalog that as a single entry. But if that radio show contains a number of, say, live performances, do we then also have to catalog each live performance that's taking place in that show? So we, we have a certain amount of, uh, of flexibility in terms of how we approach collections and the level of detail that we go into. But it's the scale of material and then the time that we have uh, to actually listen to it all. So as I mentioned, like we, we have a lot of oral history interviews. And if this material comes to us with very little documentation or perhaps not even transcriptions of material, we have to spend the time then to listen to it, to understand it so that we can catalogue it and, and describe it in, in enough detail. That's where the volunteers come in really useful for helping us to sort of better understand the material that we're working with. But it, it's usually a bit of a team decision then about how we actually proceed in terms of cataloging uh, collections and, and whether we're going to try and keep things at a slightly broader level or if it warrants going into, into more depth and creating individual catalogue records, say, for each song that's performed. Or in the case of this Scottish Poetry Library, you know, do we ca make catalogue records for every poem that's been recited? So. It's quite complex at times. It's, it's, it's quite challenging just to sort of manoeuvre. If you guys have adopted and implemented the British Library standard for cataloguing, is the same approach being taken across all the other hubs within the project? So there's, there's, there's two things going on, um, particularly for us. This isn't true for, for every hub. So there, there are 10 hubs taking part in the, in the project, and they're, they're all very you know, neatly geographically spread out. We, we've all got our, our kind of particular areas that we work on. So we're based at the National Library of Scotland, and Scotland is our kind of designated geographic region. So we're using this, this British Library standard because the, the primary goal of the project is to digitally preserve and catalogue material for long-term preservation at the British Library's digital library system, which is, is their long-term preservation system. So each hub will digitise material and catalogue that material. And through kind of separate streams, we then submit this information, this data to the British Library. So Connor submits uh, the audio files and associated uh, checksum files via uh, an FTP to a dedicated server, the British Library. I catalog everything in an Excel spreadsheet, and that gets submitted to um, the, the British Library. They do their quality checks and then import that data into the Sound and Moving Image catalog. We then have to undertake a, another stage where we create something called a submission information package. Uh, we just call it a SIP for, for short. And these packages are a way for us to combine the, the digital audio that Connor's created with the, the cataloging data I've created and bundle it together into one package. And it's these that we then ship down to the British Library, digital library system for long-term preservation. 
So each hub is is undertaking this process, and we're all following the British Library standard for how we get data to them. But at the same time, we're also trying to undertake uh, another kind of well-known and, and uh, respected archive practice, which is uh, locks. Uh, lots of copies keep stuff safe. So we're trying to also preserve the work that we're doing on a National Library of Scotland system. And so that's a separate kind of ingest process and it, it involves us having to prepare the data in, in a different way to ensure preservation as a, as a side note i'd just say one of, one of the things that's quite a privilege about working on this project is that oftentimes from my experience in, in larger organizations and archives cataloging is this entirely separate entity and it, it is so often the bread and butter of archives because it because of the significance of of getting this information you know down correctly and, and making it accessible. But oftentimes there's a, there's a big uh, separation between the engineering side of things and cataloging. And a, a cataloger, for example, they could, be, they could be cataloging a paperclip or a sound item. They'll just move through whatever material they have in front of them. With, with this project, it's been a great privilege to be for the engineering and the cataloging to collaborate so closely. I've learned a lot of the intricacies of cataloging through Rob. And I think it's I think it's the same that he's able, you know, he's he's able to question, oh, why are you being so pedantic about this format in this in this instance? And you know, I'm I'm able to do the same thing with the cataloging record. And I have found that learning more on the cataloging side has actually it's not just useful to to know it, actually it makes the engineering side run more smoothly and yeah. What comes across listening to you both is how beneficial and essential effective communication is between yourselves and the importance of having an insight and appreciation of each other's roles, aims and ambitions. Would that be fair to say? If we can go back to talk more about mini discs, like that's such a prime example of exactly that. You know, I've kind of said earlier, like I've got a long-standing interest and passion for audio, especially sort of analog formats. And it's been really interesting to see how Connor goes about digitizing some of this material. But with the mini discs uh, in particular, it was interesting for us to kind of discuss and, and collaborate on best approach in terms of digitization and cataloging. So one of the things that uh, you can accomplish with Minidisc is you can drop little marker files for you know identifying different separate tracks on a Minidisc. And this was done with oral history interviews as well. Uh, an interviewer might sort of think that something came up in conversation that was interesting and drop a little marker file or going to ask a separate question, they drop a little marker file. So when Connor's been ripping these uh, uh, mini discs, we might have a single recorded interview, but we might have anything up to like 80 separate files for this one interview. And the discussion then was like, well, do we keep the file structure as is? And we'd have these separate 80 files or do we stitch them together? Because again, it's one unique recorded event. It's a single interview. How much is to be gained by keeping the files separate instead of just one single audio file that represents the entire recording? That wasn't always the case. You know, We would have some mini disks where we might have multiple separate recorded events on a single mini disk separated in this file marker system. And so it was a case by case basis of going through the, the mini disk collection and going, well, this is something that we might want to consider stitching together. And this is one that we'll have to leave separate because we can actually break this into a number of individual unique recorded events. So mini disks, I think, surprisingly, have been one of the more, more challenging formats for us to work on in terms of both digitization and also for cataloging and you know for connor to accomplish 
his part in the in the project, he has to tunnel back onto a Windows XP machine that runs the software that allows him to rip the audio instead of having to play it and record it in real time. Yes, Sony developed this sort of, which is it's reminiscent of like a proto iTunes, really, uh, from 2002, this, this software called Sonic Stage. And 2002 is also when they stopped updating it. And so um, I run a Windows XP emulator to, to rip minidiscs. And minidiscs are, are hilarious in terms of their temporality in that because it's digital and there's just a binary sequence and you don't have to run the item in real time as you do with, with an analog signal. You know, I, like Rob has said, I rip them and it's a silent process and it's much quicker than other items in that stage. But as you're ripping these discs, it makes you feel like you're accomplishing a lot. But then you realize that the, the digital file heap that you have on the other side is so immense and tangled <laughs> that there's there's all of the it's it, it's it's really a sinkhole in many ways and although I, I will say we have worked out a really good system and it involves me ripping them naming them to our file schema which is set by the british library and then i stop rob gets to them he listens to them sees which ones need stitching and which ones work best as individual files and then i go through again and do some quick editing and then we have our final, our kind of final batch of files. And speaking of it being a, a sinkhole, the, the marker metadata is sometimes people have dropped markers in the most arbitrary way, you know, like they're meaning to press the stop button, but they pressed the marker button. Or some of the mini disc players had an auto marker dropper and they'll drop them, say, every 30 seconds or something like that. And oftentimes, if that's a single, in an oral history example, if that's a single interview, we don't need markers for every, every 30 seconds. But then it, be, and then it gets into the debate of how do we discern what was arbitrary and what was, you know, what was done in, in intentionally. So um, sorry, sorry, to, sorry to delve too, too much into minidisc. We've only had a few minidisc collections and we're in another one right now. So I think it's fresh on our minds. Not at all, it's fascinating and highlights aspects that we might not on the face of it consider or be aware of. The decision-making process, for example, in trying to determine what you're going to class as an audio event. You've spoken about how you've had to decide if audio material is categorised as singular or multiple mini-events. Are there situations where it's necessary to consider items as both? When we're, when we're doing the, the stage two cataloguing where we, we identify these recorded events, we can create two levels of catalogue record. We can create something called a parent entry which will describe, say, the large event. So we could say, you know, we're listening to uh, a, li a live music performance. So we can say, this is the concert and it took place on this date. So they can listen to the whole music performance. Or if they were only interested in listening to one or two individual songs, they could then select those child recording entries and jump straight to that point. So each song will be time-coded and they'll be able to go and listen to that individual piece directly. In terms of technology, did you have to source any of the equipment required for transfer? You've already talked about the software and measures taken with regards to Minidisc, for example. But did you start the programme from a position of having everything that you needed for the project? It's been both the National Library of Scotland and the British Library who have sourced equipment. Um, the, the British Library, they, they're the leading archive on the project. So they set us up with all of the standard equipment, the analogue to digital converter they gave us a pair of Studer A807s for quarter-inch transfers. They're old uh, BBC machines, and they're 
they've seen better days um, aesthetically, but they're, they're absolute workhorses. You know, they're the type of machine I could chuck out the window, let it get rained on and then wheel it back into the studio and run a tape through it and be fine. Well, based on the approach that the BBC had to cataloging in the 60s and 70s, that might have indeed been what actually happened. No, I, I wasn't going to go down this route, but as they were editing machines and they had such a throughput to, to get these tape segments to broadcast, I mean, the surfaces of these machines are like, you know, there's there's like razor blade uh, cuts all over them. But yeah, no, they're, they're lovely. They're lovely machines. I'm, I'm going to miss them if I ever have to go back to a, a lesser, <laughs> a lesser deck. When looking back on some of the work you've already converted and catalogued, either of you have particular material in mind that stands out i've got a couple one of the one of the first collections that we worked on came from the university of strathclyde um and it was a collection of oral history interviews with women who scottish women who were in the communist party of great britain it was one of the first collections that i got to catalog from start to finish and it was just fascinating all the way through really engaging interviews and just really interesting to try and approach the collection from so many different perspectives i'm a bit of a history buff so uh it was it was interesting to hear about their experiences firstly as as uh women uh taking part in political life in great britain but then it was interesting as well to to hear how their own perspectives had changed over time and some of them, you know, would talk about how they were uh, advocates of, of Joe Stalin. And then come the 60s and the, and the revelations that, that came out about, uh, about his undertakings. And, you know, complete shock and disbelief at first and then slow acceptance. So that was the reality of what had happened. So it was, yeah, just, just amazing. We've uh, finished work on one wildlife collection from the Scottish Ornithology Club. That was a really big challenge for me personally uh, in terms of cataloging, but immensely rewarding. It was a, a mix of material, um, primarily a lot of bird song, uh, and I'm, I'm not great at identifying bird species, so that was that was a bit of a challenge. But then also like some weird and wonderful sound effects as well. So yeah, it was a lot of fun to work on that. Uh, I got to say, I'm, I'm very proud of the work that our volunteers have uh, contributed to the, the project. They've been involved with a, um, a number of really interesting collections. Two collections of oral history that looked at Scottish theatre. We had a collection of media reports uh, surrounding the Upper Clyde shipbuilder protests in the 1970s. Um, and then there was a collection of recordings uh, made during the Caterpillar plant work-in protest that took place in Addingston in, in 1987. So, like, I mean, these are all really like significant moments in a sort of shared political cultural history of Scotland, and it's just been such a privilege to to hear this stuff and, and play a part in, in preserving that audio history for for future generations. Yeah, I'd like to second what Rob said about the women in the Scottish Communist Party. Working on that collection was just—I'll uh, never forget being able to to transfer those tapes and. You know, one thing I found so fascinating about them is I, the recordings were taken mainly in the early 90s. And so it was, you know, it was right at the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, and for, for, for many of them, you know, it, it was quite a poignant and distressing time to discuss their life in that party. And now, if, if perhaps we're on the cusp of the collapse of capitalism or some sort of massive transition, I, I just hope... I was blown away by how respectful these women were, how how um, 
how reflective they were and just how poised these interviews were. Um, and I, yeah, I hope <laughs> at whatever collapse we are, you know, we're, we're entering now, I, I hope we can do something similar as, or, or, or we can, we can have a, we can present ourselves in the same way. I just, I just found a lot of dignity, I suppose, in, in their attitude um, and the way that they held themselves. It's actually a very important point that gets to the core of what you all do in this project. You've taken it upon yourselves to preserve, where possible, the culture and heritage of an entire country via the medium of sound. The importance of that can't be understated, so it's entirely understandable to hear and appreciate your passion when working with material of this nature. I really love working with this material from all different eras, even if it's, you know, the early 90s is, is quite recent history, but even earlier. It's, it's very rare that we'll be working on a collection where there isn't something that is relevant to the contemporary. Um, and, and, I, and I think the way that those parallels from the past into today occur, and, and especially with the medium of sound, it, it's, it's, yeah, it's one of the things I get the most value out of in this role. And has the experience of working on the program generated any future audio archive and aims or ambitions for either of you? I mean, for myself personally, I'm I'm terrible for sort of starting too many like mini projects at home. Like I've got, I've got a, a modest collection of 78 RPM share like disc, which I, I know I need to get around to cataloging at some point. I just haven't uh, haven't yet, but it's it's something to do for a rainy day. I do enjoy sort of like messing around with a little bit of of analog audio equipment and. I recently picked up a uh, an L cassette player. It's like the the daddy of of compact cassettes that came out in the late sixties, and they're, they're they're not easy to come by. I was really really shocked just to to stumble across one. Uh, it, it doesn't play at the moment, but it's it's something that I'll I'll enjoy sort of messing around with and trying to get it back into into working to, to get it functioning again. In terms of other stuff, I'm I'm sure that there will be things down the pipeline, but um, this project means a lot to me personally, and I'm I'm very focused on on just doing my absolute best for it right now. I think I have a radish farm and a, a dilapidated farmhouse with my name on it without an internet, without an internet connection. <laughs> to be honest, and, and when I say this, all my punk dreams are going to die after, after I put it down on tape. But I've, I've started with my, with my own personal recording projects, whether it's a record or field recordings or whatever, I've started preparing a spreadsheet for each batch of recordings and have changed how I how I name the files so that there's some sort of schema. <laughs> I'm delighted to hear that. <laughs> the Unlocking Our Sound Heritage team really did go above and beyond in terms of accommodating the podcast as not only did they all manage to find time in their extremely busy schedules to discuss their work they were also kind enough to share some of the fantastic and intriguing content they've been working on. And it seems a fitting way to conclude the episode. First up are the precious lost sounds of a rookery from a recording made by William Brotherston in 1972 at Bells Mains in Gorebridge, Midlothian. This is from the Scottish Ornithologist Club collection and is a wonderful, though poignant, ambient listen. This recording is... To note the noise made from this rookery when they leave it in the morning because in about 12 weeks time the whole rookery is going to be cut down by Arneson Estate which have started on another strip of wood 
about a quarter of a mile to our east and are working their way round to this old crow wood. As far as I can understand, there has been a rookery there for living memory and in the autumn as now it forms a major roost which dwindles down the used Borthwick Glen but it's still a small number use it and then in the spring it picks up again and then of course it becomes what a rookery once more. Next we have the Lewis Bridal song sung by Ian McSweenan. This is an arrangement by Duncan Morrison, who also accompanied on the piano. Recorded before 1954, it comes from the Western Isles Libraries collection. The maiden who dances with joy Like foam on the wave tops Foam on the wave tops Who is the maid on the dancing floor? She's the bride who came sailing More fake of the golden hair Fair as the dawning Fair as the dawning more a fake of the golden hair Lightly she stepped to her bridal More a fake of the golden hair Fair as the dawning, fair as the dawning More a fake of the golden hair Lightly she stepped to her bridal All the team expressed their privilege to work on the following collection, and I can share with you now an interview with Frida Park from 1994. This recording was part of Neil Rafik's PhD dissertation entitled Against All Odds, Women in the Communist Party in Scotland, 1920-1991. This forms part of the collection from the University of Strathclyde. However, when I read Perestroika and Gorbachev's book, I mean, it does seem to me it's full of the usual old uh, sort of social democratic rubbish, really, you know, <laughs> in a lot of ways, you know, I mean, stuff, um, stuff in the role of women, which was pretty diabolical, um, stuff on can imperialism, can we get imperialism to change? The policy hinged on getting imperialism to change. I mean, it's not in the nature of the beast. Um, I mean, that's where utopian socialism got it wrong, you know, a uh, couple of hundred years ago almost, you know. Um, so, I mean, that, that became evident when I read Perestroika, that, you know, what they were hoping for was not possible. And, they, you know, they talked about capitalism in the market as a way almost, you know, when I was over there latterly and meeting people from, like, the US Canada Institute and things like that, they talked about capitalist relationships and market relationships 
as being a bridge, you know, to build between nations, which is quite the reverse. I mean, it leads to war, you know. Um, so, I mean, it, it, you know, once, once you know, you got more of the analysis and where Gorbachev was coming from, you know, I was not, not enamoured of that. Discussing Easter traditions in Neston, Shetland in the late 19th century, this interview with Minnie Lamont, recorded in 1964, is part of a collection at the National Library of Scotland that captures the invaluable memories of our communities. Now, Mrs Lamond, were there any other celebrations during the year? Uh, you mean when we were young ones? Yes. Yes. Well, uh, after the new year, then we had uh, we looked forward to Paisley. That's at Easter time, you know. Is that where peace? we uh, peace time? Uh -huh. or pay, we call it Paisley, but that was just peace, peace, peace day. And uh, if we didn't get an egg through the year, we always got an egg at Easter, at Paisley, because these little boys went around uh, just under Nibrick. They didn't go very far. They just went around the houses, and they had a a big mitten belonging to the sailors. You see, a great big Shetland mink sock or stocking. Mm -hmm. And they would knock at the door, and if the housewife came to the door, they would say, good day, be here, me pissick. And then she would go inside and put the egg into each of the sock, you see. A hard-boiled egg? No, no, fresh eggs, just a fresh egg. And then when they were finished with that round, they would go to the shop with their eggs and they would get that changed. They would buy sweeties and biscuits and just everything for the eggs that they were collected, you see. And then the following day, uh, we would go down to some kind of um, uh, rock or some kind of shelter place and light the wee fires. And we would uh, we boiled the eggs before that, and sometimes we would boil them in tea to get them colored. Uh -huh. And maybe some of them, if they could make a fish on them, you can. And then we would eat those boiled eggs and sweeties and biscuits and had just a lovely picnic down there. And finally, we'll leave you with Jameson Clark giving a toast to the haggis at West Sound FM's first Big Burns Supper in 1982. This was in the Guinness Book of Records as the biggest Burns Supper in the world at that time. And before I play it, I'd like to take the opportunity to give a monumental and heartfelt thanks to the Unlocking Our Sound Heritage team for sharing their thoughts, insights and recordings, and for being so wonderfully generous during what are extremely testing times. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider to give it a positive rating and be sure to tune in again next time. From everyone at Return to Zero, thanks for listening. Fair fire on a sunsy face. Great chieftain of the pun race. I've been them all, you took your place. Pinch, tripe, or them, will the wordy o' grace as langs my ear. The groaning trencher there you fill, your hurdies like a distant hill, your pen would help to mend a mill in time of need, and through your pores the dews distill like amber bead. See yonder rustic labour dicht and cut you up already slecht trenching your gushing entrails bricht like ony ditch and then oh what a glorious sight warm reeking 
wretch. Then horn for horn the streets and strive, deal take the hindmost, on they drive, till all their wheels while kites belive are bent like drums, and all good man may slightly arrive, but thank it hums. Is there the Dirty's French ragout, or Oreo that was Toasu, or Fricassee would make a spew with perfect scanner, look down with sneering scorn for view on sick a dinner? Peer devil, see him o'er his trash, as feckless as a withered rash, his spindle shank a good whiplash, his neave a net. Through bloody flood or field to dash. Oh, how unfit. But mark the rustic, haggis fed. The trembling earth resounds his tread. Clap in his wally neva bled. He'll look at whistle. And legs and arms and heads he'll stead. Like taps or thristle. Ye pours, for make mankind your care. And dish them out their bill of fear. All Scotland wants this skinking wear that jops and luggies. But if you wish her grateful prayer, gee her a haggis 